Hello and welcome to another Out of the Archives podcast. I'm Caroline Jones, the Wellington College archivist, and today we're going back 50 years to look at part of the Wellington student experience at that time. 50 years ago, in September 1970, the first Glastonbury Festival took place. Sadly, this year's festival is one of the many casualties of coronavirus. But it was this anniversary which prompted me to look into popular music at Wellington and how generations of students have experienced it and enjoyed it. Probably the first popular music to make an impression at Wellington was jazz back in the 1930s. Jazz was loved and hated with equal passion by various parts of the student body, but was played in many houses on the gramophones which were then becoming popular. The debate about whether this was a good or a bad thing was played out in letters to the Wellingtonian, and indeed sometimes literally in the debating society. In 1930 they discussed the motion, This house considers jazz music to be a vital force in musical culture. While in 1935 the motion was that jazz music is antisocial. The proposer complained about the blaring of the saxophone and the bleating of other obscene instruments which comprised the synthetic canned noise which gramophones incessantly exuded, while the opposer held that Duke Ellington was a genius on a level with any more accepted composers. By the late 1930s, some students were presenting quite academic papers on the history and the technical merits of jazz, and in 1940 a student jazz ensemble the Nomad Rhythm Sextet, performed at an official college entertainment and was a great success. In 1955, a letter to the Wellingtonian pleaded that the students should be allowed to form a jazz club. Surprisingly, this was not from a jazz fan, but from someone who argued that the formation of a club would mean that those of us who are less fond of it would be relieved from the grievous torture frequently inflicted by it in our dormitories. The writer got his wish. A jazz club was formed the next year, 1956, and perhaps more remarkably, it survived until 1968. I say remarkably because a new kind of popular music was already on the scene. In 1956, we get our first mention of it, when the debating society discusses the proposition, this house would rather listen to classical music than to jazz or rock and roll. Some speakers argued that rock and roll led to gross impropriety, or that it was like benzedrine, an amphetamine, in that it boosts you up then leaves you flat, while others supported it because it was easier to listen to. In fact, rock and roll didn't really take off at college. Perhaps our students were behind the times, because jazz continued to be popular. But through the 60s, the Wellingtonian charts the gradual emergence of teenage culture through debates and thoughtful articles by students. In 1960, there was a debate on beat culture. In 1962, several articles on what is a teenager. And in 65, two articles on protest songs. Their writers talk about Bob Dylan and Joan Baez, and one considers that the protest song has already become too commercial and fake. Then from about 1967, the Wellingtonian sees an absolute explosion of articles about popular music, reviews of concerts and so on. For example, in 1968, an article entitled 
Hip Trends in Music Today, provides a serious examination of music and especially lyrics. Looking at the influence of the hippie or peace movements and drug culture and psychedelia. The writer quotes extensively from Bob Dylan's Mr Tambourine Man, Joan Baez's Saigon Bride and The Trip and Fat Angel by Donovan. Another article from that year, simply entitled Pop Culture, starts with a review of a BBC Omnibus programme on the subject, then goes on to discuss music in more depth. The writer makes the point that blues still has the biggest influence on current popular music. He takes Cream as the prime example, but also mentions Jethro Tull, Chicken Shack and Free as others. He asserts that musically the standard of pop has leapt forward. Three chords and a pretty face are no longer enough to ensure success. Groups like the Moody Blues, Traffic and Pink Floyd have considerable music versatility and can produce a wide variety of sounds, live as well as on record. In 1969, the Wellingtonian included a review of Bob Dylan's new album, Nashville Skyline, and of a free concert in Hyde Park. This concert, held on the 7th of June 1969, is quite well known. There are a number of write-ups of it on the internet, and a video album recording of it is now available. I'll include links on the Dukebox page. The headline act was Blind Faith, an English supergroup featuring Steve Winwood, Eric Clapton, Ginger Baker and Rick Gretsch. The event was almost a mini-festival, as it included four other acts as well. Among the crowd of about 120,000 were Mick Jagger and Marianne Faithful. In October 69, two Wellingtonians went in half-term to interview Chris Welch, a journalist, at the Melody Maker. In a greasy spoon next to the Melody Maker officers, they discussed Bob Dylan and his appearance at the 1969 Isle of Wight Festival, along with the relative merits of Blind Faith, T-Rex and Frank Zappa. And in December, the Wellingtonian carried a page-and-a-half review of the Pink Floyd double album Umma Gumma. It opens, It seems that more than any other well-established progressive group, Pink Floyd have been adapted by college as a kind of favourite. They have achieved a niche in college folk culture that is completely unassailable. Aficionados among my listeners will of course know that Uma Gumma is the album which contains the experimental track Several Species of Small Furry Animals Gathered Together in a Cave and Grooving with a Pict. Again, link at the end of the podcast. In late 1968, Wellington students formed a progressive music society for those interested in what was at that time called progressive rock. It organised trips to gigs, including T-Rex, at that time still known as Tyrannosaurus Rex, Pink Floyd and later Canned Heat and Fairport Convention. The society also organised its own gigs, and it may come as a surprise to you to learn that some quite well-known musicians have actually played at Wellington. I've counted at least 10 concerts that the Society hosted here between 1969 and 74, with at least 17 artists in total. The concerts were held in what was then the theatre, which was down between the outdoor pool and the Talbot. It's since burnt down. The first band to play there, the John Dummer Blues Band, 
apparently remarked afterwards that the theatre's acoustics were among the best they'd ever played in. Considering that the wooden building had started life as a swimming pool and later been a woodwork shop before being turned into a theatre, I find that somewhat surprising. An account of a gig in July 1969 reads rather like the plot of a comedy. The bands performing were Skin Alley, a short-lived band founded by Thomas Crimble, who later became one of the key organisers of Glastonbury Festival, East of Eden, who were also linked from this podcast, and Free, best known for their 1970 hit single, All Right Now, which you might know. The Wellingtonian tells us that Originally, this concert was going to be in the open air, in the Master's Garden. But unfortunately, it rained heavily and continuously on the day appointed. So the concert had to be split into two parts in the theatre. This, however, was not the end of our troubles, as East of Eden turned up late, having broken down on the M1, and Eclection, the original group booked, were in Germany. We were, however, able to get hold of Skin Alley instead. Free arrived in the pouring rain, closely followed by the blind face roadie and Chris Wood ex-Traffic. Skin Alley then appeared in bits and got ready for the first set. By now there were four lots of equipment and utter chaos on stage. However, at last Skin Alley opened their first set. We could not have had a better deal because they showed themselves to be at least as good as the other better known bands and we hope to have them again soon. Free played next. They put on a really professional act with exceedingly good balance and were very popular. A break then followed, while Steve Winwood's Land Rover set off to find East of Eden, at that moment being towed back to college by the core bus. When East of Eden arrived, we gave them a much-needed meal, while negotiations went forward to allow the second part of the concert to infringe the Master's callover. At last, East of Eden found their way onto the stage, and launched into certainly the strongest and probably the most inventive sound heard in the theatre. So it was that out of some fairly grim prospects, the concert in fact turned out to be a great success. The Society hosted several more acts, including Hawkwind in 1970, and in 1971 Genesis, with the line-up of Peter Gabriel, Mike Rutherford, Steve Hackett, Tony Banks and Phil Collins. At first it looked as though ill luck might prevail again, because we read, Six days before the concert, we heard that Peter Gabriel had broken his ankle in five places by jumping off the stage, and that Genesis had not played at Reading because of it. After a panic of ringing up agencies and trying to find someone to take their place, we eventually heard that they would be coming, despite the ankle, which was in plaster. Genesis proved very popular at college. The highlight was apparently a track called The Knife, in which Gabriel bounced up and down and it looked as though his other ankle was doomed. You can see this lineup of Genesis performing this song in another of the links that you'll find attached to the podcast. The Progressive Music Society seems to have fizzled out in 1972, and music reviews in general also disappear from the Wellingtonian at that time. In 74, it reappeared, but briefly. Its last hurrah was a concert at college by the band UFO. During their top number, Prince Kajuku, chairs were dispensed within a second and the whole theatre became a conglomeration of wildly flailing arms and legs. Again, you can listen to that track in the links. 
Reading all of this, I was aware that the reviews and articles in The Wellingtonian were written by a relatively small number of students who could focus on their particular passions. I wondered how representative they were of Wellingtonians as a whole. Fortunately, we can go some way towards finding the answer to that, because in 1969, someone conducted a census to count the number of albums owned by students which were physically in college. The relative numbers of albums by different artists were compiled to produce a Wellington College Top 15. The overwhelming winners, perhaps unsurprisingly, were the Beatles, with a total of 172 copies of their albums in college. Next came the Rolling Stones, with 122 copies, and third were Cream, with 92. Bob Dylan, with 73 albums, just beat The Doors, with 70. And other names in the top 15 were Pink Floyd, Simon and Garfunkel, Jimi Hendrix, Led Zeppelin, The Beach Boys and Leonard Cohen. So from that, I take it that the bands discussed and reviewed in the Wellingtonian were broadly, those which were generally popular in college. As an aside, some of you may have noticed that just as the college was exclusively male at that time, so were all of their favourite artists. The census also totted up the number of albums held in each house. There was a considerable discrepancy here, ranging from the Talbot, which had 215 albums, to the Picton, which had only 54. Clearly, some houses or maybe some individuals within them, were much greater music fans than others. The total number of albums in college was reckoned to be about 1,900. The total number of artists represented was over 180, but the only artists to be found in every house were the Beatles and the Stones. It would be interesting to conduct a similar survey among Wellington students nowadays, and I wonder how it could be done. I suppose we would have to ask each student who was their most streamed or downloaded artist. Perhaps I'll leave that as a challenge to the editors of the current Wellingtonian. It's even something that could be done remotely. And in 50 years from now, it could be the subject of another podcast, or whatever the equivalent is, by then. Thank you for listening. I'll be back soon.